Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and our study here in the book of Acts, we've made our way now to verse number 41 of Acts chapter 2. On the great day of Pentecost, when there was a great move of God, and many thousands of people were saved on the same day, as a result of the Holy Spirit's conviction and the preaching of the Word of God about who Jesus Christ is. We come now to Acts chapter 2, verse 41, and it will describe the response of those who were saved on that day. And what I want to consider this morning is what happened in the lives of these people who made a profession of faith, who said that they had believed on Christ on that day, what took place in their lives, and it's described here in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. And the reason that we're going to spend some time, besides the fact that it's in our text and we're working our way through the book of Acts, but I believe this is important this morning because today we have a prevailing sentiment in Christianity that it's possible for someone to make a profession of faith and for it to have no subsequent effect on their life. And I think it's helpful to look in the scriptures and see what happened when people were converted in the Bible, and note that there definitely was a change that took place. Acts chapter 2, verse 41, the scripture says this, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. This morning I'd like to speak to you for a few moments about what it means to continue steadfastly. Now bear in mind that the people who are spoken of in verse number 41 that gladly received his word and were baptized and then were added to the assembly of the church there in Jerusalem were made up of people who had come from all over the known world. There were people with a Hebrew background. Most of them were Hebrews by birth, although some were proselytes, meaning they had converted to Judaism, though they were from other languages and nations. But most of these people, despite the fact that they were Hebrew by birth and Hebrew in their worship, had come from other countries, because as we saw last week, The children of Israel had been scattered all throughout the known world during the diaspora, the time of the captivity, when the Jewish people were scattered all across the known world. And still at this time, in Acts chapter 2, there were Jewish people living all over the known world. They spoke the, the Hebrew language, but they also spoke other languages of the countries where they were from. On this day... There was a miracle that took place, and by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, 
these individuals heard the word of God and the truth about Jesus Christ being preached in their own languages by men who had never studied or learned those languages. This was clearly a divine work. And God was showing these individuals who were hearing this message that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ and ought to be believed on. And they saw themselves in this position and realized that they were in great need of salvation. And they asked, what shall we do? And then they responded to the admonition of Peter. And it says in verse 41, they gladly received his word. There was a conversion that took place. That is, these people who just 50 days before were crying out against Jesus, believing that he should be crucified, were now fully convinced that Jesus was the Messiah and that Jesus had raised from the dead and that Jesus was the one whom they should believe on and whom they should follow. And now they made that choice in their life and they gladly received the word and they became followers of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you and I can appreciate how dramatic this change was for them to go from where they were to where they now found themselves in a moment of time. We recognize that this is a work of God. But what I want to point out to you this morning is that when someone gets saved, That is, when they are converted, that's a Bible word, when they are born again, there is a change that takes place in their life. This passage in Acts chapter 2 points out at least four things that were true about these folks when they got saved. Now, I want to point out to you before we begin to deal with these things from the text, That these are not things that you do in order to earn God's favor and be saved. These are things that are the result of the new birth taking place. Of you receiving life from the power of the Spirit of God. This is the result of conversion. A person is saved by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. By obeying the gospel. By realizing that they cannot save themselves and their sins have condemned them in the sight of God. A person is saved by recognizing their sin and looking to the Savior for the life that he offers through his death, burial, and resurrection. But when a person is saved, there will be a difference that is made in that person's life. The difference in these individuals' lives was immediate. It was seen so powerfully and so vividly that it caused many people to wonder about what was going on in Jerusalem. You say, well, what happened in their lives after they were saved? Well, you'll notice in verse 42, it says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, it's important to understand that these who had gotten saved, who are mentioned in verse 41, had also immediately followed in scriptural baptism and therefore were added to the church at Jerusalem. And this was not a small number of people. It says there were 3,000 souls. Now, taking the numbers in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2... 
about the assembly of believers that had gathered in the upper room to pray and wait for the promise of the Father, there were 120 people in the upper room, and now 3,000 people got saved and baptized the same day and joined to that assembly. So you could say, this turned things upside down for a lot of people. This changed a lot of things in the church at Jerusalem. But what was it that these were marked by? What was it that showed in their life that indicates that they had indeed been born again? Well, notice with me, first of all, that these who had gotten saved had a love for doctrine. It says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Doctrine. That's a dirty word today. In most evangelical circles, people regard talking about doctrine as almost inflammatory. Why are you talking about doctrine? There's this idea in modern Christianity that we need to put doctrine to the side and just embrace one another, whoever says they believe in Jesus Christ. But the Bible says doctrine is important. Doctrine is what we believe. Doctrine is what we teach. Doctrine is the truth of what the Bible says. And doctrine is very important. You might ask the question this morning, well, why are so many professing Christians this morning seemingly allergic to doctrine? If you start talking about doctrine, they say, I I don't want a church like that. I'm not interested in being involved in a place that teaches doctrine. Well, maybe it has something to do with the fact that they haven't gladly received the word. You see, what marks these individuals in verse 41 is that they had gladly received the word about their need of salvation. Therefore, they were in a place where they were willing to receive instruction about what other things they had misunderstood and not believed correctly about. Because they gladly received the word in salvation, they were willing to gladly receive the word in other areas of their life. This morning, I want you to understand without any apology that it does matter what you believe. It does matter what this church teaches and preaches. Doctrine is important Because what you believe is going to have a dramatic effect on every area of your life and even your eternity. It's a misnomer this morning that you can have fellowship without doctrine. The truth is, fellowship, which we'll talk about in a moment, comes because there is some commonness in what we believe. We believe the same things. You can't have spiritual fellowship with someone who believes something different than you do. You've got to have some commonality. Now, obviously, we understand that we give space for people to grow. We give space for people to work through things that they've misunderstood. But all of us should be seeking to come to a place of agreement, not agreement with whatever pastor says is right, but agreement with whatever the Bible says is right. This is the commonality. This is the place where we find the foundation of what we believe. Now, in this case, 
in Acts chapter 2, they were receiving and continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. You might say, now why did it mention the apostles' doctrine? Because as you might recall, at this time, the New Testament has not yet been completed. The apostles have been given a special authority and dispensation from Jesus Christ himself to declare and to share the things that they had heard and observed and learned in the ministry of Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus said in the Great Commission, all things whatsoever I have commanded or taught you. They were to take those things and they were to proclaim those to those who became disciples. So what they were declaring had not yet been written down. You and I have the luxury of having the Word of God, the completed Word of God before us, the complete canon of Scripture, but these believers were dependent upon the testimony of the apostles about what Jesus had taught and what had happened during Jesus' ministry. And this is exactly what brought them together. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They clung to the things that the apostles were teaching, which Jesus had taught to them. And I want to point out to you that doctrine is an important part of a believer's life. You say, well, doctrine, that's for the Sunday school teachers and the people who are training for ministry. No, that's for every single one of us. Doctrine, it's important that we know what we believe and why we believe it. We ought to treasure doctrine. Sadly, today, there's a minimizing of doctrine because the truth is doctrine divides. But God still intends for his people to love doctrine And God still wants us to instruct in doctrine and for that instruction in doctrine to be a primary part of why we gather together as believers. This is what we do as a church. We gather together and we open the scriptures and we say, what does the Bible say and what does that mean to my life and what should I do? That is doctrine. So we notice that when people really get saved... When they have a work of God in their life, they're going to love doctrine. Why? Because doctrine is truth. And God's people are people of the truth. Love for doctrine. But the second thing we see about these people that was true in their life after they got saved, not only did they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, but they also continued steadfastly in fellowship. Fellowship. So they had a longing for fellowship. Now, again, I can't help but think about the fact that these people who had just gotten saved just a few weeks earlier had been the crowd that was crying out for Jesus to be crucified and and had evil intentions towards the disciples, the followers of Christ. And now they can't get enough of fellowship with those same people. Now they're sharing their inner life And they're learning to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think there's a misunderstanding about fellowship. A lot of that is is probably responsible or is, is because of the way that we use the word fellowship. Oftentimes in our language today, in the English language, usually when we think about fellowship, we use it synonymously with a time that we get together for food. And so we say, we're going to have a fellowship tonight. And what we mean is... We're going to eat something. By the way, we're not having a fellowship tonight. But if we were, we would say we're having a fellowship tonight. And what that means is we're having food. Now, if you showed up to a fellowship that had been advertised and there was no food, 
and there was just people sitting around talking about the things of the Lord, you might say, wait a second, I thought we were having a fellowship. Where's the food? Pastor, you, you, that was false advertising. If I would have known there was no food, I don't know if I would have come. All right. So fellowship, as it's used in the Bible, really has nothing to do with food. We'll see something about food in just a moment. But the fellowship that is spoken about here is actually the, the imparting of what is in my heart with, with you and you, what is your, in, in your heart with me. And we're talking about what God is doing in our life and how God is real to us. The word fellowship that is used here refers to communication. And it means that there is an openness about the work of God in every believer's life. So in the scriptures, when it speaks of fellowship, it's talking about more than just spending time together or being in the same general vicinity of one another or having conversation about any old thing. No, what is specifically intended by fellowship from a scriptural standpoint is speaking about doctrine, speaking about what God is doing in our life, what we are learning about God, how God is at work, uh, looking to one another for encouragement and accountability. This is all a part of fellowship. Now, many people are a little bit resistant, actually, to the scriptural idea of fellowship because that requires some risk-taking. It requires some opening of your life to someone else. It, it, It requires getting to know someone else and hearing what is on their heart and and being interested in the things that are going on in their life. But we notice that in these individuals, that when they got saved, something that became very important to them was fellowship. Now, the the book of 1 John tells us that when a person is converted, one thing that you will notice about them is that they will have a love for those who are brethren in Christ. They're going to have love for others who are also children of God. And particularly uh, within the body, I believe that that love will be evidenced towards those who are members of the same assembly, those who have covenanted together. So we notice that there is a definite change in them in that now they are continuing in fellowship with the, the apostles. But something that jumped out at me in verse 46, just direct your attention down there for just a moment, It says, they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. And they were praising God. But what I want to point out to you is there in verse 46, that every day these new believers were gathering together with the church at Jerusalem. Where were they gathering? In the temple. They were gathering in the temple. Now, they were also going house to house, and we'll get to that in just a moment, what that's about. But the primary place where they were gathering, and realistically, the only facility large enough to house all of them was the temple there in Jerusalem. Does that strike you as a little bit of irony? They are right in enemy territory, openly praising God, openly worshiping Jesus Christ, most likely they were out in the court of the Gentiles 
gathered together in that area, one of the porches of the temple, and they were worshiping God. But notice what it says about how they were gathering together. They were with one accord. One accord. And what that means is they had a spirit of harmony, a spirit of oneness. And what this means is that they had come to the place of agreement. They agreed about the things that they believed. They agreed about the things that would be priorities for them. And they were longing for fellowship with one another. One of the marks of someone being genuinely converted is that they really love being around other believers. They just love being with the assembly. They, they want to be in the house of God. They want to learn more. They want to talk with others and fellowship, sharing what God is doing in their life. Now, you might say to me this morning, well, pastor, that's just not my personality. I, I'm not wired that way. And, and I understand that there are differences of personality. I understand that some folks in this auditorium are probably more like the just tell it all put it all over Facebook, tell everybody exactly what's going on. A lot of other people are probably more private and quiet, and it takes a team of wild horses to drag anything out of you to figure out what's actually going on. This really has nothing to do with our natural personality. What this has to do with is our concern to be an encouragement to one another. And when we share what God is doing in our lives, for instance, we share how God is answering prayer or how God is directing us or how God has spoken to us through his word, that becomes then something that's not just for me, but something that can be a blessing to others. Therefore, fellowship is important. If you say, well, fellowship is uncomfortable for me, it's definitely outside my comfort zone. I understand that, but this is still something that all of us should prioritize and should seek to come to a place where we are regularly fellowshipping one with another. And not not just coming in and sitting in a pew and and singing songs with others and listening to preaching and then leaving, but I mean fellowshipping with one another, the, the, the connection that needs to take place. So we see that there was a love for doctrine, there was a longing for fellowship, and then we find, and, and this goes along with it, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And I want you to notice here this breaking of bread. And this phrase is used quite frequently in the book of Acts. Some suggest that that at times perhaps this refers to the observance of the Lord's table, and perhaps it does. But I think most of the time that this phrase is used, it means exactly what it sounds like, which is they were breaking bread. And that's a phrase that we use to say when you get together to eat. And you fellowship, so there's fellowship that is is involved, but you're sharing a meal together. So there is, in, in these the lives of these who have gotten saved, there's not only a love for doctrine and a longing for fellowship, but third of all, They are living in communion with one another. They are spending time together, and we would suggest that this is taking place outside of the larger gatherings of the whole church body. This is perhaps uh, where it comes in, where it says that they are breaking bread from house to house. And obviously with upwards of more than than 3,000 people now who are members of the church, 
you can't really get 3,000 people in anybody's house, but there are, they, they are getting together in smaller groups together with one another, and they are sharing meals, and in the context of those informal gatherings, they are encouraging one another, they're lifting up one another, they're meeting one another's needs. There's something special that does happen when we eat together. And just a minute ago when I was talking about fellowships, I was not trying to minimize the value of eating together. I'm not exactly sure what it is that happens around a meal. Maybe one of our Bible Institute guys will prepare a thesis on this subject and explain to us what exactly happens or why it's so important when we eat together. <coughs> you know, it's, it's so important, though, that after Jesus raised from the dead, he found his disciples mm -hmm. and he ate with them. Mm -hmm. Now, clearly, Jesus did not need to eat. Right. By that point, he's in his glorified body. He, he doesn't have a need for food like you and I have a need for food in order to survive. But he ate with them. And you say, what was that showing? What was that, what was that demonstrating? I believe it was demonstrating some communion. It was demonstrating to them his love for them, his desire to spend time with them. There is something special that happens when we share a meal together. This breaking of bread, if you think about it, was most likely a very simple meal. Breaking bread. You know, it's doubtful that they were putting on the spread, hiring caterers to come in and provide the meal. This is just a simple meal. If we take it to be literal, it's people getting together and eating good bread. There's something to be said for good bread. Not that I'm trying to make you hungry just at this point in the message, but understand, you know, there are times when we say, well, we, we just can't have people come to our home. We can't have those opportunities to, to entertain because that's just too involved and too difficult. You know, you got to make a big fancy meal and you got to do all this stuff. And honestly, what is involved here, because this is happening every day in these homes, uh, it got to the point where the house is what the house is. Uh, just deal with it. We live here and there's people here every day and we're going to have a meal. We're going to share some bread. It's going to be a simple meal. And I'll explain why this is significant in just a moment. It's going to be a simple meal, but that meal is going to meet the needs of those who are in our congregation. And while we share that meal, we're going to also be sharing in our life. You see what happens when we share a meal together or when we get together around other things besides just when we assemble together as a church. Are you all following what I'm saying here? We're sharing in one another's lives. We're sharing in what is going on in one another's hearts. You know, the New Testament tells us we are to rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep. That's what a church family does. And sometimes, depending on the size of a church congregation... You could have both of those things happening at the same time. I remember one day several years ago when I went to conduct a funeral in the morning for one of our families that was saying goodbye to their loved one. And in the afternoon, I came back and conducted a wedding ceremony for a young couple that was getting married. 
And that's really a vivid picture of rejoicing with them that rejoice and weeping with them that weep. That's what church family does. We walk with one another through the trials, and we also rejoice together in the victories that God gives. This is what it means to share life together. In this case, in Acts chapter 2, these believers are sharing what they had with those who were running out of resources. Did you see what it said in verse 44? All that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And, and some people have taken verse 44 and 45 to say, well, this is what all churches should do all the time. Everybody should just sell all their stuff, put all their resources together, and then share it out amongst everybody. This is actually kind of a unique situation here in the book of Acts, because as you recall, many of these members have come from other parts of the world. They have now been in Jerusalem for at least 50 days, probably longer than that, And by this point, they would have expected to be going home. And in other words, they've used up the resources that they brought or that they set aside for this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now it's time to go home and go back to their jobs and their families. But something has happened in their life. They've gotten saved. They've been baptized. They've joined a church. Now they don't really want to go home quite yet because they're learning about who Jesus is and they're growing in the things of the Lord and, and, and they want to stay, but they're running out of resources. So now what happened? Well, the people who were from Jerusalem, who had some resources, said, we're going to provide for this need. And so they sold the things that they had, and they shared that with one another. In other words, what they were doing was sacrificing for one another to meet the needs that they had. This ought to be the mark of an assembly of believers, that we care enough about others to reach out to one another in the time of need. And it says that as they lived in this manner of communion, they did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. That's at the end of verse 46. They ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Now, that's probably, I mean, maybe the food was exceptionally good, but I doubt if it had that much to do with the quality of the food, and it probably had a lot more to do with the quality of the company and how much they enjoyed sharing their lives together. What was it that drew them together? Well, it says they had singleness of heart. And that singleness of heart came from what had happened in them, the fact that they were now committed to Jesus Christ. They loved Jesus Christ, and they loved one another because they have a common interest. Jesus had become their single focus. I want to say this this morning, that when people really get saved, true believers love other believers, and they want to spend time with them. I am not suggesting that that is always comfortable. I'm not suggesting that that is always easy. In fact, as we have noted many times before, God will often use the relationships within a church family to further the work of sanctification. As we realize that we're not exactly the same, that we don't all have the same personality, that, that we don't all respond exactly the same to this situation or that situation, 
that God is in the, the business of sanctifying us and making us like Jesus. And part of that process is learning to submit to one another in love within the church family. And so we see that real believers live in communion with one another. If you want to see what happens and and what Satan really likes to do is he likes to get individual believers at odds with the assembly, with the body, and get them off by themselves. Because remember, he is our adversary. He is as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. And he loves to separate out individual members and get them off by themselves so that he can prey on them. And so it's so important that we as a church family learn to respond with humility and with selflessness and learn that there is strength when God has brought us together. There is strength in the body and we ought to love other believers and desire to spend time with them because this is the mark of a real believer. They live in communion with one another. Love for doctrine, longing for fellowship, living in communion, and fourth of all, leaning on prayer. It says in verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. There is something very, very special about a church that prays together. When a church gets on their face before God and brings petitions before the throne of the Almighty and comes before His throne with the confidence of His promises with what God has declared will be, there is something very, very special about that. I praise God that we're part of a church family that is learning to pray together. I will confess to you that oftentimes the means of God teaching us about prayer is when he allows us to walk together through deep trials. And it's in those times that we are made painfully aware of how much we need the Lord. Now, we notice that this congregation is praying together, but I want you to think about what this must have been like. 120 original in the number, all of a sudden 3,000 are added. That means that at prayer meeting, there's a good chance you have no idea who the person is that you're praying with. You're, you're learning who this person is. You know, you can learn a lot about a person when you pray with them, can't you? By listening to the things that are on their heart and, and praying with them about the concerns that they have. This is a very intimate kind of fellowship that can take place when a church learns to pray together. Now, what would a church pray about? Let me give you some ideas or some suggestions. We can praise God and thank Him together, can't we? There's times when as a church we just need to set aside and we try to do this through the year a couple of times to say, God, you've been so good to us and we want to praise you and thank you. And as a church, it's good for us to have prayer seasons where we are just devoting that time to praising God and thanking Him for His goodness. It's appropriate for us to do that. It's also appropriate for a church to bring needs before the Lord. When we have members who are going through trials, when there are difficulties in people's lives, and they ask the church, 
We need you to pray about this. We've got this difficulty. We've got this problem. And they bring it to the church and ask us to pray. It's appropriate for a church to get on our face before God and bring those things before the throne of grace. It's also appropriate for us to pray about the gospel going forth with power. You will find in the book of Acts that this is a primary point of the prayer of that first church. They were often praying, asking God for boldness and for opportunities and for open doors so that they might make known the name of Jesus Christ. And as a church, this is something that we ought to be praying about frequently, asking God to continue doing a work in the world around us and permitting us to be a part of that work. It's appropriate for a church to pray together, and actually, it's a needful thing. And I want to point out here that if there is a neglected meeting of a church family, it is usually the prayer meeting. It's usually the time when we gather together for prayer that people say, well, I could pray at home. Uh, You know, I just don't have time to get there. I'm kind of busy right now. I've got a lot of other things. I, I need to go and talk to this person out in the foyer. No, prayer time is important. And if I could urge you to prioritize prayer time as a church, that when we're praying, you would say, I want to be there because I want to be a part of coming before the throne of grace with my church family and bringing petitions before the Lord. Because this is what believers do. Yes, we pray privately, but we also pray corporately as a church family. So these believers had a real change in their life. Love for doctrine, longing for fellowship, living in communion with one another, leaning on prayer. And I want to ask you this morning, what was the result of this taking place in these lives? Well, it says in verse 47, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. In other words, people were paying attention to what was happening. They were realizing, wow, there's something going on there with this assembly of believers, these disciples of Jesus Christ, something is happening in their midst, and many of them were favorable towards that. And then it says, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now, you understand and I understand that Acts chapter 2 is a very special season. It's a very special moving of God I personally believe that Acts chapter 2 is a lot of reaping from a lot of sowing that had already taken place, preparation that God had been doing in many people's lives. But I want you just for a moment to think about what this would be like to be daily having people come to Christ, daily people saying, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want what you've got. I want my life to be different. I want to I want to be baptized. I want to be a part of the congregation. I want to be an out and out disciple of Jesus Christ. You can imagine how exciting this must have been and you can imagine how thrilled these folks must have been to see the power of God in reality in their lives. Now, this morning it doesn't really come down to How many people do we see getting saved? Are we seeing somebody saved every day? That's not 
how we measure. But the question is this, is God real in our lives? Is he working in our congregation? Is he at work in our personal lives? Then are we sharing that with one another? Is God getting the glory and is that promoting the cause of Jesus Christ in the world around us? Because that should be the result. And what we should be shooting for or desiring is to continue steadfastly. Now, it's possible this morning that you're here and you're saved and you know that you've been born again. But my question is, in your life, are these four things a reality for you? Uh, Are these things that are priorities? It can happen, especially after you've been a Christian for a while. It can happen that you can grow cold in your love for the Lord and in your love for the brethren. And you can start to step away from the things that used to be priorities to you. And what you're going to find is that the more you step away, the easier it's going to be to stay away and the harder it's going to be to return. I think we saw some of this with COVID, didn't we? When, you know, there's reasons, there's stuff that's going on in the background. I get all that. There was, you know, all kinds of confusion and... but. In some people's lives, that can manifest itself as, well, now I've been away for so long, I don't know how to come back. And if you're listening this morning to the message by way of the live stream, let me just speak to you for a second. We want you to come back. You say, I don't know how to come back. Just come back. Just come. And we'll welcome you. We want to see you here. For those of you who are here, we're glad that you're here. Don't leave. Stay here. We need one another. As we are heading into what appear to be darker and darker days, we need one another. We need this ability to to know each other, to pray for one another, to walk together in the ways of the Lord. And we are expecting that God is going to continue doing great things in our lives. This morning, I hope that your resolve and your desire is to continue steadfastly. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, that certainly is his purpose. That's what he wants to do. He wants for the message of Jesus to be amplified. He wants for many people to fear God. And he wants for the gospel to be made plain so that people can be saved. That is what God is doing through a New Testament church. Praise God. If you're a part of this church, for the privilege of being a part of what God is doing.